0: Hello and welcome to today's edition of Reenchanting with me, Justin Briley and Belle Tindall. But today's edition is a little bit different because we're not in the interviewer seat today. We're handing that over to Jonathan Aitken, who is going to be interviewing Rory Stewart, who has a long history in politics until his resignation from the government in 2019. Today, he's well known as a co-host of Arrest is Politics podcast.
1: And as Justin has mentioned, Rory will be interviewed by the Reverend Jonathan Aitken, who surely has one of the most colourful careers in public service, a career that has seen him be a politician, a prisoner and a priest. With much in common, Jonathan and Rory will speak about the current state of politics, public service, prison reform and how faith underlies all of the above. Plus, if you are wondering whether Rory Stewart may just make a return to the political scene, this is the episode to listen
0: to absolutely so we're looking forward to their conversation on re-enchanting politics hope you enjoy it
2: rory thank you so much for doing this for the center for cultural witness your lives and my life have been of slightly different generations but they have intersected in various areas so perhaps we might talk a bit about first of all the political scene i know that you're gloomy about it i'm gloomy about it but very for different reasons and maybe we've got different thoughts, but start away. Tell me why you are as pessimistic as you have sounded in various arenas on politics today.
3: Um, I, I, I mean, obviously, this is the result of, of nine, ten years in, in Parliament. And um, I think the strongest impression I got is that politics has become very strangely detached from reality. W- one aspect of that is that ministers. Government are not really thinking particularly hard about if they are the environment minister, for example, what they want their legacy to be in 20 years' time in terms of the environment. They're largely thinking about how do I produce provocative, eye catching statements to charm the media, drive up my public profile, get promoted, get into the cabinet as quickly as possible, and then have a shot at being prime minister. And this results in a very, very odd culture there's no time really for anybody to have serious conversations about policy the culture is very gossipy and the relationship with the civil servants is very odd because partly because ministers are being reshuffled unbelievably frequently so we've had a the current defence secretary i think has had five cabinet posts in just over a year Not surprisingly, the civil service becomes very defensive and stubborn and very reluctant to adapt to what a minister is saying to them because they think, well, how long are you going to be here anyway? There's no point in my changing the whole system if you're gone in three months. That then creates a very, very odd dynamic where the ministers are making increasingly outrageous and grand statements, uh, none of which have any real connection to reality. And when they try to drive them through, results in very odd results. I saw
2: a phrase of yours, government by press release. And I think a rather good story of your um, first moment as a junior minister um, going into the Secretary of State and getting some orders. It was Liz Truss, I think. Yes. Tell us that yeah. story because yeah. it
3: really is an illuminating one. Yeah, so I, I think the word, I, I became the environment minister, and I thought, well, this is very exciting, I'm going to be able to plant, you know, 300 million trees. I'm going to be able to make a bit of difference to air pollution. Going to be able to clean up water. What a wonderful thing. And, you know, 25 years time, I'll be able to look at British nature and feel, you know, what I've I've managed to, to help do. And one of the things I was responsible for is the national parks. So I go in to see Liz Truss, who was then my boss, the Secretary of State for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. And I had two encounters with her on the national parks. The first one was that she said to me, Rory, I want a 10-point plan on the national parks. And I thought it was very, very exciting. I'll go away. I'll get the chief execs of the national parks around a table. We'll talk to some of the key charities. We'll think hard about it. We'll get a strategy on your desk in about five weeks on where we're going with the national parks. And she said, no, I want it in two days. And I, I looked a bit white. And she said, Rory, come on, how difficult can it be? I can write it for you immediately. You know, Get more kids into the national parks, blah, blah, blah. And sure enough, on Friday, there it was in the Daily Telegraph, Liz Truss's seven-point plan for the national park. Thereafter, I never really heard her talk about national parks or take any real interest in national parks until she came to see me and she said, um, Rory, I'd like you to cut the budgets of the national parks by 20%. So I said, well, Secretary of State, um, you know, their budget's very small. I think it's be quite damaging, be very unpopular. Are you really sure you want to do this? And she said, OK, Rory, for you, 5%. So I said, well, if you're only cutting by 5%, you'll make people very angry, probably not worth doing at all. So then she said, okay, for you, Rory, we won't cut them at all. And then sort of pirouetted out of the room. And it sort of, I I mean, it was an example which maybe I'm putting too much weight on, but seemed to me a sort of symbol of an extraordinary lack of seriousness. I don't think in any normal business, in any normal enterprise, would the boss come in and say, I want this cut by 20% and then five minutes later be agreeing not to cut it at all.
2: Is this something to do with the personality of modern politicians? Because as I say in a moment, it wasn't ever quite thus. Or is it something to do with the 24-hour news cycle? It's the impatience of the people rather than the
3: haste of the politicians. So I presume it's a relationship between politicians, voters, media, social media. And why is Liz Truss successful? I suspect because she was fun for journalists to have lunch with. She uh, could always produce a good story, sometimes deliberately, sometimes not deliberately. She was absolutely loyal to the prime minister and would go out and parrot the party line on the Today programme without deviating by a word. So she would go out and she would say the long-term economic plan is working again and again. And then she was able to signal to the party members, who, again, is an interesting part of this. You know, when my mother joined the Conservative Party in the fifties, there were two and a half million members; there are now just over a hundred thousand. And of course, they're they're older and more right wing than the general population. She was somehow able, in a slightly odd way, to present herself as a sort of reincarnation of Margaret Thatcher, although she's nothing really like Margaret Thatcher. She simply put on the clothes. She posed on a tank and put on various costumes. So how does she get away with this? Despite being personally quite eccentric, I mean, it wasn't as though the civil servants particularly rated her as a minister or any of her colleagues particularly uh, took her seriously as a policy thinker. It must be because of an increasingly short attention span that people just simply can't be bothered with or maybe they think it's boring putting up with people making ponderous, complicated points about administration. What they like is somebody who um, is able to sort of project. She she was the first politician to embrace Instagram. And Instagram's particularly interesting because there's basically no words, it's just an image. So she would put out an image of herself in front of another flag, apparently getting another trade treaty for Britain.
2: I guess Liz Trust uh, is history now. But yet, Some of these fault lines go on in Parliament itself, and Parliament has the power to correct cabinets and governments and individual ministers. Uh, Is there some seismic fault inside Parliament? I
3: I rather feel there is. Well, I I mean, Jonathan, I'm, I'm talking too much, I'd I'd love to bring you in. I mean, I think one thing that may have changed is that when you were in Parliament, the party leaders were chosen by the MPs, which meant that they were generally choosing someone they knew quite well, and they had a sense of how well they thought they would do in running the country. As soon as you give that decision to the party members, that shifts to over 100,000 people who really don't know much. It's the point that Machiavelli makes that that the
4: prince can get away with a lot because the public can't see what the prince is up to inside his palace. It's sort of Detached from the public. Um, But I don't know. I I don't know what was the compensating factor. I mean, I, I hear from people who are in Parliament with you
3: that they feel that politics was more serious, ministers were more serious. I mean, do you have any views on why that might have been?
2: I do have some thoughts on why. There's been a deterioration. And they're roughly these. When I got into Parliament in February 1974, to me, as a new youngster, the people who were in Parliament, on the, a lot of them had done great things in their lives. Of course, there was the war. Still a surviving number of people had fought in it. We had one VC and I think three military crosses on the Conservative benches, but on the Labour side, two, people like Dennis Healy had been Beachmasters and just But then almost everybody had done a lot in running up businesses, careers, and then got into Parliament. Now I see that the career ladder seems to go so clearly through professional politics. Um, We in 74, thereabouts, used to sort of rather sniffless, oh, they're just the office boys, people who had only been in the Conservative Research Department. But now, with a generation of spads and lobbyists, there, I can't see many people, I mean, you you're so obviously mm. having exception, but who've actually done things much in life before, and the House of Commons is therefore a poorer place. And if you have done a lot in your life before, you stand up to the little inpricks of politics much more easily, and you're not terrified of losing
3: chance of being under secretary of drains and sewers. Right. Do you think there's something in that? I think there's definitely something in that. I think there's probably also, that the women and men you're describing would have been more accustomed to managing things. Um, and therefore, it's not likely that they would have treated civil servants in the way that we see many people behaving. It's also true that the civil service is a bit odd. I mean, we're in the middle of the COVID inquiry, and we're seeing all these extraordinary WhatsApp messages where it turns out that the cabinet secretary is sitting at the table with the prime minister on his phone under the table saying this prime minister's useless, he's hopeless, he's a cracked shopping trolley. And again, I can't imagine that, you know, Burke Trend would have been sort of sending these sort of messages while the prime minister uh, you're was absolutely speaking.
2: right. Or Harold Macmillan, right. the right. prime minister, right. it is. Um, but we mustn't just sit here being old farts, or in my case, saying it was much better in my day. Um, how to put it
3: right? Well, I think partly it's structural. So partly, I think it is about the way that the party systems work, the way they select candidates is a big part of it. I mean, there's just pure technical points. To become a Conservative MP now, and basically to become a Labour or Lib Dem MP, you have to prove how many hundreds or thousands of hours you've spent delivering leaflets and how many years you've done it for. And you're marked on your campaigning experience. So almost by definition, if you were running a big international charity or a business or Serving in the military, you simply couldn't have thousands of hours of going to every by-election, delivering leaflets. Um, so it favours generally people who are special advisors, party members, local councillors in the whole selection procedure. So you'd have to change that. I think you can also. I'm increasingly think that we may need to think about changing our electoral pr- process to something more like the New Zealand system, which is a sort of balance between first past the post and proportional representation. So constituency links with a bit of a balance, because I think we need some new blood, and I think the parties are getting pretty old and sclerotic. But I think there's a separate thing from structures, which is the mentality, the character of the politician. And and that's more difficult to address. I mean, that's um, that's about rebuilding a sense of people being serious.
2: Yes. I, I, that French phrase, homme sérieux, mm. used to apply to the greater majority, I think, of politicians. Now they come and go quickly. And just about going quickly,
3: a lot of people seem to retire very early. Be- because it's, cause it's, cause it's an awful job. Right. I mean, but, so, so the, the, but, hidden, the hidden secret of it is that sometimes people leave early because they're ambitious. But the truth is that the job has become so peculiar and humiliating that people stay around often for the minimum period of time it takes to become, if they can a cabinet minister or prime minister and then they try to get out and do something else because it's the it's a sort of become a very high stress low status job, extremely um, undignified, humiliating, strange life. Um, let me get a bit personal. Have you yourself gone
2: from politics um, or are you still... Like Cincinnati's waiting to be called back from your um, farm?
3: I think I'm I think I'm out. I mean I, I found it very, very, very strange and I, I think
4: look, so some I,
3: I it may be a character point. I mean some members of Parliament I think are better able to cope with it. Um, I was very struck, for example, by Ken Clark, who I guess was elected when you mm, were elected, yes. yeah. Um how incredibly sort of level-headed and good-humoured he remained. Uh, he could see all the nonsense happening. He could see all the gossip happening. He could see all the ambition, but he, he took it very lightly and didn't seem to sort of throw him off balance. Um, and But people like that are quite rare, and I'm not sure I have the right personality to be sufficiently um, relaxed. I get too enraged with, with what's going on around me. I want to just press this point on you
2: slightly. Um, because I, I, you've got a big fan club, I'm there as a junior member of it, who would like to have seen you gone on, like to have seen you, and even if you hadn't got the brass ring and ended up in number 10, if you'd gone to be foreign sector or something, mm-hmm. well within your grasp of capabilities, and yet you could be now going back, and you say you're not going back. And... Uh, I want to just read you a quotation, you'll be familiar with it, maybe, or watch it, which is from Theodore Roosevelt, and it's about contrasting um, the critic and the man in the arena. And just the opening lines, it is not the critic who counts, wrote Theodore Roosevelt, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives vanity, and on it goes. Wonderful, a piece of um, oratory. Um, and I'm disappointed in you and anyone else who, having been in the arena, uh, just heads for the city or wherever, or to the podcast for and
3: isn't there sticking at it? Is This is an unfair criticism. Um, it may be fair, maybe unfair. I think the, the, the question is about compromise and what you're prepared to compromise on. So, in my case, in order to remain as a member of parliament, in order to have a chance of being foreign secretary, I would have had to go into an election endorsing Boris Johnson with big pictures of him on my leaflets. I would have had to sign up to his vision of threatening a no deal Brexit that I thought was catastrophic and that I had said repeatedly on the record was catastrophic. And I would have had to deal with going into the television studios as a member of his cabinet, month in, month out, defending him on his wallpaper, defending him on his breaking his COVID regulations. And I felt that I couldn't, in all honesty, endorse this man as prime minister or endorse the direction in which the party was going. And I don't think there is a comfortable role in politics to say, And it wasn't even an option for me. I mean, he threw me out of my constituency. He deselected me, threw me out of Parliament, right? I mean, he made it a condition for standing again that I needed to do all these things. I needed, as it were, to kiss the ring to the Mafia godfather. Um, But I think the reason why he insisted that and probably why he was right is he would have felt that there's not much point having a Member of Parliament who stands for an election saying, yes, I'm a conservative, but I think this chap is a terrible human being and a terrible prime minister. And I think that the course on which our party's going in its foreign policy is catastrophic. And I think this man isn't serious enough in dealing with COVID, et cetera, et cetera. I'm going to keep developing it. So I think the, um, the, the question for Roosevelt is when do you say no?
4: Mm.
3: And Roosevelt is not a particular hero of mine. I'm much more interested in Thomas More Right. Henry VIII would have said to Thomas More, come on, stay in the game. Compromise a little bit. You know, why are you getting all caught up in this theological conversation about my wife? You know, stick with it. Stay in the arena. You know, don't be a critic. I'm sure if you stay inside the tent rather than outside, you'll be able to contribute more to the Tudor state. Look at this wonderful man, Thomas Cromwell. You know, he's staying in the arena. You know, I think it's, and that's why all my friends who remain in Nigerian politics remain in Nigerian politics. I look at it and I think, this is the most terrifyingly corrupt government. And they say, well, I've got to stay in here because if I don't, the next person will be more corrupt. But I also think there's a place for stepping out and saying, this is an outrage.
2: Yes, as uh, you mentioned, your case. Well, I, I just express the hope. Um, after all, you're 50 years old, which is young for a politician. I mean, with Joe Biden. Around. <laughs> indeed. Uh, in your prime, I mean, I'm 81. I, I'd go back tomorrow if That's I thought ridiculous. I could have some you're, wonderful. You're the same uh, age as Joe Biden. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I just think that uh, parliamentary and political service is the sort of ultimate. Way of serving your country.
3: I, yeah, I absolutely agree. If if I could, if somebody offered me the chance to do what David Cameron's done and come back as yes. such, I would accept in an yes. instant.
2: Yeah. Well, perhaps that's an optimistic note to end this section of the talk on. Um, let's open to a subject which we both had rather different experiences on: prison. Uh, you're a prison minister; I was a prisoner. Um, but I know from your excellent lecture at the Longford Trust a few nights ago, uh, this is something you care deeply about. I think you had a riff saying uh, the test of society's civilization was how we uh, looked after the prison system. Um, I'm still working in the prison system myself as a chaplain, but tell me um, why you regard reforming the prisons as such a high calling. Not many politicians
3: do. Well, I, I think that there's one just a fact about democracy, which is that politics, as I say, is very detached from reality and politicians float off and do strange things. And the thing that keeps politics generally grounded is the public. The reason why there's a limit to the chaos and misery that politicians can impose on a school or a hospital is that people's children are in that school. People's Relatives are in the hospital. They're going in and out of these institutions all the time. So there is a degree of, to use the horrible jargon, transparency, accountability. The public sees these things and can say, oi, this isn't good enough. But there are certain areas of public life, of which prisons is perhaps the most extreme example, where the public is largely excluded. And most members of the public don't know anybody in prison, don't have relatives in prison, certainly don't visit prisons. And it's more than that. It's not just the public's excluded. They're actually often indifferent or actively hostile. So many, many members of the public actually think, well, I don't care much about prisoners. These people are criminals and they, they deserve what they're getting. For that reason, the responsibility of the government is much greater than it is in other areas of public life, because you can't rely on the public to say, oi, this isn't good enough. Instead, the government itself has to take the initiative to look after the interests of prisoners when other people often are not doing so. And in that, I think, we manifestly fail. Our prisons are not good, and they have far too many people in them. Our buildings are old and creaky. Despite all the things we talk about, they remain drug-ridden, filthy, violent, inhumane places where increasingly prisoners are locked up far too many hours a day, they're not getting a decent quality of education. It's just rubbish. You know, if you were to visit a school or a hospital and see it looking like our prisons, you'd be completely
4: disgusted. And if you had a relative in one of these places, you would think, goodness gracious me, right? Um, So I think that
3: with prisons, and it's not just prisons, I think the same is true of the homeless, the same is true of how we treat asylum seekers. The same is true of the way we think about the vulnerable elderly, people with dementia. These are areas that the public doesn't talk about a great deal, where politicians have a special responsibility to engage.
2: Now, I need to say with you on prisons, although I don't think working there on a fairly regular frequent basis every week, that it's quite as bad, uh, and the prisoners themselves don't think it's quite as bad as I are saying, but it does vary enormously from Prison to prison, and I was horrified in your book on uh, about the description of Liverpool Prison. Pentonville today has got one of two things to be proud of, like a new wing for mentally unwell prisoners, and uh, all kinds of things are going on. Which are rather good, but uh, still. But, but
3: Pentonville was the prison I was working on. Yes. And, and and you know Pentonville very well, but you know when we started working in Pentonville, twenty seventeen there had been the most horrifying uh, incidents. There had been somebody in solitary confinement who had not been checked on for nine hours who managed to kill himself with the prison officers not following the basic procedures and the doctors and nurses being excluded from the cell. We had mounds of garbage in the yards being thrown out of broken windows. We, We put a lot of energy into trying to sort out Proper gate procedures, dogs, get paint on the walls, get windows fixed.
4: But it was pretty
3: bad, and the violence statistics were pretty bad in Petitville. Prison officers getting beaten up, prisoners were getting beaten up.
2: It was. Before my time, I defensively said it is much, much better now, and there's an air of hope about it, but it's still unsatisfactory. And the whole system is hugely unsatisfactory, and no one, practically, except you and a few other voices, including mine, are interested in reforming. Uh, Why not? Because there are no votes in prisons. The public aren't that interested. Treasury won't pay, and so on. Um, And I, at your lecture, the Longford Trust was exhilarated by the diagnosis. And then I waited for the cure. And now you might just say on the podcast what the
3: Rory reform policy really is. So I think, um, again, in, in, in the same way as when I'm talking about Parliament, I say that it's about structures and people. The same is true in prisons. Um, because of the fact that you can't simply rely on the goodwill of individual governors or ministers, you need a strong legal framework. And I think the time has come to set legally binding minimum number of hours outside cells, for example. So... Prisoners should be legally entitled to 10 hours out of 24 outside their cells. And these things are very difficult. I mean, I understand. You know, you start putting in legally binding minimum standards, it poses a huge pressure on the system. And the system would prefer to say, you know, this is a, should be a preference, but there should be some wiggle room around the edges. But I don't trust wiggle room. Because it's not just the system. I
2: mean, for the rural policy to have any chance... You have to first of all get Parliament to vote for it, but then you've got to get the judges to completely reform their sentencing. Um, and then you've got to get the public behind this. Um, and um, when well, I listened to you, uh, and we moved, I was reminded of an old joke of, about Enoch Powell, who's the subject of the joke, and the man who told the joke was Ian McLeod, who was his colleague. And he said, about more than one or two of um, Enoch's ideas. I'm a fellow traveler with Enoch, but I like to get off one or two stops before the bus crashes into the buffers of the terminus. Now, um, politics is the art of the possible. Um, And that sort of makes me ask a rather awkward question. I mean, are you now, as a podcaster, a peddler of dreams, or are you still interested in being really practical about getting reforms through.
3: Mm. I think one of the trusts of whether something's practical or not is, has it been done anywhere else? I mean, if I think if what I was peddling was something that was completely out there, was sort of flying to Mars style, you, you could challenge me. But the fact is, the United States, which hardly has the most humane prison system in the world, has minimum legally binding targets on the number of hours that you have to be outside a cell, and we don't. Sweden has legally binding minimum targets on crowding in prisons, and we don't. Now, I agree it's a stretch making the British prison system as humane as that of the United States or Sweden, but I don't think it's quite Enoch Powell hitting the buffers. now. And the great thing about putting legally binding minimum standards in is it forces the Treasury to pay attention, and the money people are the only people with any power. If you just go around saying, well, I don't know. we do our best to keep crowding and overcrowding under control, but occasionally we have to go above the numbers, right? You can get away with where we're going at the moment, which is we're heading towards 100,000, 120,000 people going into prisons built for basically 70,000. If you actually put in legal requirements, suddenly the whole system has a problem, and it's a problem that ends at the Treasury's desk. The Treasury then has to work out whether they're going to spend another £50 billion pounds building new prisons, or whether they're going to put significant pressure on Parliament in order to change the sentencing. So these things can be done. And, and I think the, the test for politics is obviously this question of where the balance is between unrealistic idealism and realism.
2: Yes, I agree mm-hmm. with that. I, I do hope you're right. By the way, I've just been in America touring some jails not a single one of them was giving prisoners a lot of time out of the cells. Oh, it depends which states you're yeah, in. I, it in okay. yeah. I mean, in Sweden, yeah. I know about yeah. But, yeah. Then, yeah. but
3: No, no, in many states, you, you can yes. take a legal case if you're not outside yeah. yourself for a certain number of hours a day.
2: Yeah. Well, let's try it for that reform. Yeah. Um, moving on to prisoners, let's go to some, um, what might be called, Moral and spiritual issues, but you mentioned Thomas More. Um, who else in your pantheon of heroes do you really admire? Who you're, um, and not in some distant century, but anyone today on any
3: kind of political scene? Uh, uh, so you, you preempted me before I was about to praise Gladstone. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, uh, so who who do I admire? I, I had colleagues in Parliament I admired greatly, David Gork, who was my boss, and the. Ministry of Justice, yes. I thought was a really wonderful man. I thought he was thoughtful, highly intelligent, brave, drove through reforms very effectively, managed civil servants very well. I mean, he was a real sense of hope that there can be people like that around. Well, outside of Parliament there, isn't the last it? Outside of Parliament, because for the same reason as me, he yeah. was not prepared to put up with the nonsense yeah. that Boris Johnson was about to impose. Um, and he, like me, I think, is still interested in the idea of going back. The question is, can we recreate a vision of a centre-right Conservative Party that isn't drifting ever more quickly in the direction of Nigel Farage, which is the direction it's going at the moment. Who else do I admire? I I admired Angela Merkel very much in Germany. I thought she was a splendid figure. Um, I was very fond of Theresa May. She she has her flaws, but I thought
4: she had a sort of splendid air to her. I I think Joe Biden could be a
3: terrific one-term president. I think he's being surprisingly effective. He's not a great intellectual. He's not a great moralizer, but he's a great practical politician. He's good at getting stuff through the Senate and through Congress, putting bills together in a way that President Obama, who's a much easier figure to write books about because he's you know intellectually much more serious, much more articulate, was not able to get stuff done in the same way. Um, so I think Biden is a good example of a, of a politician to admire. I'm very
2: encouraged to hear second time around. I think the first, first time around, you and David Gork might be fighting to come back and reform the system. But um, just picking up something on Joe Biden, I mean, one of the things that's driven him throughout his career has been his faith. He's a most uh, diligent and devoted Catholic. And um, one of the things that seems to have been lost just generally in politics is people who've got anchors. Um, they don't have to be spiritual anchors, but um, those have been the traditional anchors for many institutions. And um, I think you're a pessimist about many of our institutions as well. as. Um, uh, but what part does faith play still in our
3: um, national life, public life. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's very, very sad. I mean, there's a real sense of things becoming unmoored. And you're absolutely right. Most of our institutions were built on a foundation of faith. And it's very difficult to understand many of the great political advances of the 19th century prison reform, the abolition of slavery, the extension of the franchise without understanding that these were people driven by deep religious faith. That's what, even the elimination of corruption in the British civil service was part of a moral program driven by faith.
4: And so it is difficult, I think, to fully reimagine what
3: it means to say that character matters, that virtue matters, that honesty matters, that etc cetera, etc cetera, without some kind
4: of connection to faith. Now, Aristotle tries to do this in the very particular context of being a, a gentleman politician and describing Athens two
3: thousand four hundred years ago. He does try to describe what it would mean to hold to moral values without necessarily linking it to God. But it's not something that we
4: find easy. And I think the there needs to be an element, without being too pretentious about it, um, of gentle heroism in running an effective institution. Because an effective institution is always about not being purely a careerist. It's
3: about not purely thinking, what have I got to do to, what have I got to say to be promoted? Nor is it purely asking yourself, what is the legal minimum that I can do? It has to be about values. It has
4: to be about communicating to your own staff. You want them to do what's right.
3: And asking yourself in relation to whoever you're serving, doesn't matter if it's a politician, it's the public, but I guess
4: if you're running a business, it might be your customer. How, how do I treat these people correctly? And those things, I think, rely on things which are very intimately connected to religion. In particular, the idea of basic human dignity. I mean, you you, what God delivers
3: is a sense that every human has intrinsic dignity; that they are, in that sense, equal, and that they cannot be treated just as a means to an end. They're an end in themselves. Um, so I think that this is this is this is difficult with our institutions, and it's one of the reasons, along with social media, along with the collapse of our economic and political systems, that we find not just politics in trouble, but our universities in trouble, BBC in trouble, many, many other things. Just saw the political scene. American politicians very
2: often do wear their religious faith uh, on their sleeve, uh, and they summon up God's name, and prayers are much more public. Uh, we are, in our system... Shy and reticent. Sure. I have a theory myself. It all starts with a joke <clears throat> made by Disraeli against Gladstone. He, when Mr. Gladstone um, sort of fell into the Thames, he could bear the idea that Mister Gladstone had uh, got the ace of trumps up his sleeve and done well and been able to rescue from himself and the government. He couldn't bear Mister Gladstone even saying that God had put it there. Right and. And that sort of somehow changed the tone of 19th century um, religion being, and it's still regarded, I think, when British scene, politics as a private matter, even though plenty. Um, Do you think religion is sort of a taboo subject among modern politicians? I even knew, I noticed in your own books, there's very few references to faith. Mm. Um, Do you have a faith personally?
3: I I I, um, I struggle with these issues. I mean, I go to church every Sunday. I I I pray. Um, I've grown up in a Christian family. It's very important to me, and it's very important to my children. Um, but I come from a, a very um, uh, reticent
4: Anglican tradition, um, and um, I think i mean i i partly find it difficult to talk about because i um
3: i think i'm intimidated by theologians i'm very impressed when i
4: hear people who know what they're talking about and have thought deeply talking about religion um uh and i understand that that um that there's a a very good reason to think within Christianity, there's no reason why an ordinary person
3: can't talk about these things, but i'm I'm so sort of in awe when I read
4: Bonhoeffer about the precision and the um, the empathy and the depth of his reflections that I don't really feel that I want to be
2: well
3: touching I'm, on that train I think almost all of us can touch the hem of Bonhoeffer's
2: garment. but if it's any encouragement to you, I think ours I for generations. Um well I've trying for decades um a member of the church reticent wing of anglicanism uh dear praying out loud it was just enough to me uh, and um uh but um sometimes something shakes you up uh and changes you and shifts you, which you said it did in my case. I'm very glad it did but um I just wish that um Faith and theology were just more in the public arena of debate, and it's
3: disappointing that it's not. It is, but it's also, I think, um, I mean, I think the U.S. is is a pretty troubling example, isn't it? Because it's, it's not exactly, I mean, it, it would be comforting to think, That's a place where all the politicians spend all their time talking about religion, and therefore they're running a much better country. It it doesn't really feel to us, so that's the case. And again, a lot of my
4: colleagues who spend a lot of time posing as um, it's maybe posing as unfair, but I often it's difficult, I guess, in politics
3: not to feel that there's an element of spiritual pride in the politicians who, in, in British politics who spend a lot of time emphasizing their faith. It's a bit different actually in, in Northern Ireland. I, I I do think that um, many of the politicians in Ireland, I, I really feel that there's a, a profound link between their faith and their politics and that they are um, very engaged with it in a way that I
4: think is tangible. But I also felt that there were People in politics who made a great parade of their Christian
3: faith, who I often felt were pretty dismal human beings. Now, that that's true. We're all dismal human beings, but but I think the um, but I think it's it, maybe it's simply that it, it the, 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 the taint of hypocrisy of politi- when politicians start bang on too much about religion is, is difficult to overcome. It may be not the ideal profession to yes. be doing
2: it. Yeah. so does the moment of start counting the spoons
3: Exactly. Um, it's a bit like the, the, the second-hand car salesman saying, I'm a pretty honest kind of guy. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's
2: a... um, an area where um, perhaps not always conventional religion, certainly spirituality can emerge is in the hinterlands of people. And I very interesting. Two bits of your hinterland. Um, one is your enormous love for Cumbria and your old constituency, uh, and that whole area. The book on the, about your father and I love that book, and then also something I want to draw you out on on your charitable service. Um, I know a bit about Turquoise Mountain, but these are very interesting dimension and of you. And just take the chance to well, talk you. about. Um,
3: the charge law. Thank, thank you. Uh, so I, I'm involved in two very, very, very different charities at different ends. So, one, as you say, is Turquoise Mountain, which I set up in 2005, 2006 in Afghanistan, and which my wife now runs, and which has been working in largely in conflict zones in Afghanistan and West Bank, in Myanmar and Burma. With craftspeople and with heritage. And it essentially protects cultural heritage and war zones. So we've restored 140 buildings in the old city of Kabul, but also supported traditional artisans, weavers, woodworkers, jewelers to export their products abroad, keep these arts alive. And there, I think what animates it is the sense of joy, pride, and beauty that it's bringing or supporting in people's lives. That we live in a very, very often a very sort of um, reductive culture where we imagine that everything needs to be quantified and often, for good reasons, aid programs delivered in places like Afghanistan can be quite humiliating. The sort of assumption of them is you're not educated, you're not healthy, you're not treating your women correctly and we're coming to sort you out, sort of patronizing. Whereas Tuckers Mountain is essentially saying you have a miracle here. Your art is incredibly beautiful. Your buildings are very beautiful. These are things that don't exist anywhere in the world, and that people all the way around the world will will pay for uh, because they admire them. And therefore, you are have a dignity and uh, a beauty um, which is exceptional. So, I, I think that that's the first type of work I do. The second type of work, and and there actually, I you know, we've had. Um, incredibly generous support from a friend of ours called Wafik Said, who's been very supportive and who just was visiting, um, recently meeting Syrian refugee craftspeople in Jordan that we're working with, who've, again, you know, have escaped from a war zone, have seen their workshops destroyed, and have rebuilt um, beautiful workshops, employing young people, bringing new apprentices out of war. The second thing I do is I work at the absolute other end, on extreme poverty in Africa, mostly, through a charity called GiveDirectly. And there, we simply give unconditional direct cash transfers to the extreme poor. There's no capacity building. There's no definition of what they do with it. They simply get the money and get on with it. And it is miraculous. You give $700 to a household on the Rwanda-Burundi border. You return three months later. And the whole village, everyone's got $700 three months later you return, and electrification has doubled. You've gone from 40% of people with electricity to 80%. Every roof has been fixed. Everybody has a latrine. There's a huge uptick in numbers of children in school. People are eating better. They're healthier. And you're achieving it for a fraction of the cost that a normal charity would do because you're trusting people. You're effectively saying, again, not we know best in the center, or we're going to send out a bunch of capacity builders to tell you what to do we are going to trust you you know a 70 year old lady in a mud hut on the round of Burundi border to have a much better idea of what to do with 700 dollars than i do cuz you live in that hut and you've spent the last 30 years of your life staring at the hole in the roof um so i think a lot of what i'm trying to do in life whether i return to politics or not is about that idea of taking power away from the center and giving it back to people and letting them fix their own problems rather than someone telling them what to do.
2: Well, those are very noble ideals. And actually, they can work in right here in the UK. For example, we've been talking and about the rehabilitation of prisoners uh, and lives which have been blighted by criminal activity. It's a most unfashionable cause, but I don't think the state... Is ever going to be much cop at rehabilitation, the probation service, And so why not give the money directly to the charities which actually do it? Or, or, or even, even directly, yeah, yes? Uh, even More radically, uh, directly to uh, the released prisoners. Yes.
3: Yeah. Which, which actually has been, I mean, it sounds crazy, but it's actually been unbelievably effective in Canada with homeless people. So they gave a very large sum of money, so $4,500 per homeless person. Basically unconditional cash transfer. People predicted catastrophe, hmm. You know, said that they would all use it on drugs and this and the other. The reality is it has massively reduced the population of homeless people and has reduced the burden on the state. And by and large, almost all of them use it to get a rent on a small place, help themselves get a job, put some food on the table and have ended up costing the state much, much less than it would normally spend on trying to support them. So I think... I would very much like if we could find someone prepared to do it. You'd probably have to start with the philanthropist experimenting on giving large cash transfers to release prisoners. And my suspicion is, the reoffending rates will go down much more steeply than you can imagine. Well, we have to find some great philanthropists
2: for this purpose. We're lucky in some of our philanthropists in our society. It's still a generous nation, and the big philanthropists on Great Merivale Wolfic side like you are, but there are other big men in this field, but the, the giving of people to small charities is still, I think, one of the very healthy things which goes on in our society. This uh, podcast, we've talked about ideas, which isn't very frequent uh, activity, but it's been uh, organized by the Center for Cultural Witness. And in this way, that's trying to get new ideas and to change the culture. And um, I'm an optimist about all these things we've been talking about, or this whole idea that the culture can be changed. It seems to be going in a rather negative direction, whether it's politics
3: or daytime television. I I think you have to be brutal about the problems in order to change. I, I don't think change comes from happy talk. I think change comes from saying this is a disgrace. I suspect the real advances in civil rights and slavery came from people saying, this is disgusting. And therefore, I think I'm often in trouble from our former colleagues for being negative about parliament. They tend to say, oh, it's not that bad. And it was all marvelous. I mean, I, you know, I was talking to Seb Coe yesterday, who m- may even been in parliament with you. And yeah, 92 to 97. And he was saying, well, I liked your book, Rory. But you know, the one thing I disagree with is I think Every politician I worked with was a deeply honorable person who was really committed to doing the right thing. And I felt maybe, maybe not. I mean, I don't look into their souls. I don't know. Maybe they are all deeply honorable people. But the result of what they're doing is often disgraceful, lacking in seriousness, not effective, and caught up in nonsense. And so, whether there with Parliament or with international development, where again, I think we are wasting colossal sums of money on bureaucracy and on pious patronizing programs, which would be much better given directly to people, or whether in international relations, where I think we have entirely failed on the Middle East peace process, we've completely failed to come up with a proper response to Putin's invasion of Crimea in 2014, but failed in a totally different way in Iraq and Afghanistan, we have problems, and they're made worse by social media and they're made worse by the fact that our economic system is not delivering for so many people, that the rich are doing awfully well, inequality is pretty extreme, and median incomes are frozen. And we don't have any political parties really generating any ideas on how to fix any of this stuff. They're talking about growth that doesn't seem to be coming from anywhere, they're fantasizing about steps they're going to take on climate change that simply don't add up. Um, so. All of that is something to be worried about, but I also
4: have, um, you know, again, I don't think it's uh, sort of, you know, Enoch Powell's style uh, over-idealism to say that I have evidence
3: that humans have in the past addressed very, very big problems. Uh, We clearly are a species that has the capacity to respond. I mean, in pretentious words, I, you know, innovate and resilience, but, you know, we did sort out slavery and voting and the suffragettes and all this sort of stuff, and we did fight and win the Second World War, and we have kept peace, broadly speaking, in Europe for 70 years. Um, and I think we're capable of seriousness, but we're only capable of seriousness if we keep the debate going, if we keep pointing out that there are problems.
2: I profoundly agree with that analysis, uh, and we have... Lost a certain amount of seriousness. I'm not quite sure why, whether it's disgeneration, um or whether it's the relentless uh, media culture. But I think what I do disagree with, I think Parliament is still a potentially wonderful, tested, and tried machine. We can kick ministers out, we can change direction, and we've done so time and again. Uh, and mm quite right to hark back to the slave trade, how difficult that was, one great parliamentarian um, and others. Um, changing the culture, um, I guess it starts with voices crying in the wilderness at the beginning, but then almost all of those people who did succeed managed to get a team around them, a team of supporters. Are you too much of a loner or are you a team captain?
3: I, I love managing and I love having teams. And I think the charity I built in Afghanistan was quite a successful team. I think I was relatively good at getting a team behind me as a prisons minister. Yeah, I'm just not awfully good at making a team of politicians. i oh, right. relatively good with teams of civil servants and non-political people.
2: Well, I'll predict now that your hour will come again. Thank you. And our hour is just about up here on this program. Thanks a lot for doing this. Thank you.
1: Well, that was quite the conversation. Mm -hmm. Uh, There is so much that we could pull apart and talk about. Um, I think Jonathan Aitken really probed and prodded Rory.
0: And there was good reason why we we put Jonathan in the seat this week for interviewing Rory, because it did feel like a a match-up, peer-to-peer kind of conversation. Jonathan, in a way, asking questions that we wouldn't have felt quite qualified to ask.
1: Absolutely. I'm not sure I would be able to live with myself if I was the one who told Rory Stroud I was disappointed in him <laughs>
0: yeah, I, <laughs> I, I couldn't that, have that done great. that <laughs> that was great but no I mean it, it was a wonderfully kind of congenial conversation yeah. as well I thought it was it was interesting that uh, that Jonathan did draw out that there would be an openness potentially for Rory to re-enter the sphere Absolutely. of public life if the right invitation came his way.
1: There's hope there, everyone. There's
0: <laughs> hope. I feel like that podcast is so popular that if Alistair Campbell and Rory Stewart just kind of made a bid for government, they'd be in, in a shot. They'd you know, yeah, it's, nail it's, it. It's, it's, it's amazing. But Absolutely. in all seriousness, there, there was, I thought, a really good conversation on the practicalities of politics, prison yes. reform, that yes. kind of thing. Obviously, you know, Jonathan a little bit more sceptical about mm. some of the solutions Rory was positing, but. Both coming from a very a place of, of actual experience in that area.
1: Yeah, there was that wonderful line that we couldn't have written where Jonathan said, we both have experience of prisons, you as the prisons minister, me as a prisoner. <laughs> that and was i great. we're also on a podcast. Yeah, do you get that? Exactly. I thought that was excellent. Exactly, exactly. And and then I thought Jonathan very
0: tactfully drew out, mm. you know, the faith side of of uh, Rory's story you know, as he described himself, a reticent, reticent Anglican, Anglican um, yeah. and surprisingly, you know, diffident and humble about his theological acumen, which, yes. you know, given what a gifted person he is, you, you wouldn't necessarily expect, but.
1: No, we're not used to that. Rory's the one who knows everything. <laughs> so to hear him say, I get intimidated by theologians was incredibly interesting yeah. and extremely relatable. Yeah. Don't we all? Absolutely.
0: <laughs> but good to know that, that obviously a, a deep level faith does feel what he does and, mm. and his approach to politics Absolutely. And, and there was so much there about just the way that we need to see public life re-enchanted yeah. um obviously both of them feeling that there has been this careerism and sort of this shallowness almost um mm. the, the the sort of silliness that
1: yeah
0: that, that was referenced a few times and yeah. the seriousness that needs to re-enter this uh and I don't know, I, that, I found that inspiring personally.
1: Absolutely. I think all of it was so wonderfully summed up and for Re-Enchanting, definitely so, where I think they both spoke about faith being an anchor and without mm. it, you know, institutions, uh, governments, individuals were unmoored, I think, yeah. was the was the phrase they used. And so for for you know, for the things we speak about and we ponder with reenchanting to sort of see faith be something which on even very practical levels is something that could re enchant mm. politics and public service for public service sake as opposed to career politics, which was sort of touched upon. I thought it was fascinating.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So thank you for watching yeah. and listening and being part of the conversation too. You can rate review if you're listening or watching on video you can share this with other people on social media. Go to seenandunseen.com for more episodes of Reenchanting. For now, thank you for being with us. If you've enjoyed listening to Rory Stewart and Jonathan Aitken, why not investigate our archive of interviews with leading figures in politics, arts, and academia, including Lord Michael Hastings on Reenchanting Public Life, Marilyn Robinson on Reenchanting the Human Story, Tom Holland on reenchanting history, and Frank Skinner on reenchanting comedy. Subscribe to Reenchanting on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts to hear more about how to reenchant a secular world with the Christian vision of reality.